0: This time on Watchers of Tomorrow, we have become comfortably numb.
1: everyone, welcome to Watchers of Tomorrow, the sci-fi review and critique show that is the cause of all war and human suffering. My name is Gep, and I'm joined as always by my friend and co-host, Dr. Izix. Hi! And it's the move. it's movie time. It's movie time.
0: Movie time.
1: We take a break from episodic stuff and do a movie. Movie uh, time. I decided this week we're going to be looking at the 2002 answer to The Matrix. <laughs>
0: Um, in a way, um, yeah. <laughs> it I guess makes use of some of the similar vibes.
1: Yeah, it's kind of. I think this is what happens when you have the Matrix do its change in the format of action movie sci-fi that the Matrix mm-hmm. did, and you didn't understand a single thing that The Matrix was trying to do, and then you also didn't understand a single thing that any of the source material that you're drawing from was trying to do.
0: (laughs) Uh, I guess that's one way to sort of uh, explain uh, some of this movie's elements, yeah. Yeah, I think
1: that's what's (laughs) happening. So this is the 2002 movie Equilibrium.
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, No, wait, does an equilibrium state between two, uh, you know, uh, uh, say, ideal gases? Oh, cool.
1: It's an entire movie about balancing gases. <laughs> uh this movie was written and directed by Kurt Wimmer, who's uh writer, director, sometimes producer. Does other has done some other sci-fi fantasies and fantasy films. Uh his first film was Not Equilibrium, even though he says it was. It was One Tough Bastard, which is a film I've not heard of.
0: Mm, neither have I came out in 1996.
1: Yep. He also wrote The Sphere, which I've heard of but not seen. I
0: I think I've seen part of it,
1: yeah. And the Thomas Crown affair, which is same.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was a Sphere I've seen part of and uh, I remember it was kind of awkward.
1: Yeah, as far as I yeah. can recall the bits <laughs> I've seen.
0: Uh he also uh, wrote Ultraviolet.
1: Wrote and directed Ultraviolet, which yes. is another Badly received, high-concept, poorly thought-out sci-fi sword movies. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Seems to like sword and gun movies.
1: (laughs) Also, uh, wrote and directed the remake of Children of the Corn in 2020. Corn! And wrote the 2012 remake of Total Recall.
0: Hmm. Which I have not
1: actually seen. Yeah, so... I'm pulling out some examples, but like not exactly the world's best track record. Uh,
0: it's, it's mixed. It has some interesting stuff going on, but yeah. And I did, in fact, find out
1: that um, no one's heard of this movie. No, no one had heard of this movie. No one was aware of this movie's existence. It picked up a little bit of a following years after it came out when it was on DVD. Uh, and the reason no one's heard of this movie is because they actively decided to never advertise it at all. It had a, basically a zero advertising budget.
0: Whoops. So, uh, yeah, if you don't, people don't know a movie exists, they're probably not going to go out and see it or look for it or, you know, be aware that it's come out for video or whatever.
1: Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, they decided to not advertise this movie in the slightest, which is why uh, no one's really heard of it.
0: Yeah, I I have, but you know, I also know some kind of obscure movies sometimes. Mhm.
1: All right, I'm going to do a fairly quick rundown of cast cuz it's one of, it's a movie so you've heard of all of these people as opposed to like yes. all of our little obscure television background characters. <laughs> mhm. <laughs> so, it uh stars Christian Bale of Batman fame as John Preston, who's a monk of some description. <laughs> A
0: cleric, specifically. Yeah. So uh, he's able to uh, kick some ass and do healing spells.
1: Yes, battle cleric. <laughs> battle monk cleric. Uh,
0: he was also in American Psycho.
1: Yes, he was in a lot of stuff. Yes.
0: <laughs> Which I believe is uh, why he was uh, actually cast for this uh, particular uh, movie here. I mean, like,
1: you yeah. want <laughs> an actor to realistically portray having no emotions? Christian Bale is your guy.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: I mean, I've enjoyed him a lot of things, but if you picture, like, who do I need to play a character with no emotions, this is literally the first actor that pops into your head. <laughs>
0: you know, uh, the, the second actor is, uh, you know, acting unit 4000.
1: <laughs> also have have uh, Emily Watson, who played Mary O'Brien. Ode? No, no, it's not O'Brien. Odeburn. I can't pronounce this name. It's, something's kind of Scottish-y. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Ode Baron. I don't think they ever actually say her last name in the movie. Yeah,
0: no, I don't remember it.
1: Hmm. Um, she's, she's been around. I couldn't find any particular movie that I recognized her from, but she's another large name actor, so she's yeah. been around in things.
0: Corpse Bride, uh, Everest, uh, in a number of episodes of Genius, uh, The Secret Life of Marilyn Monroe. Mm. Yes, so uh, stuff. <laughs> Uh,
1: Tay Diggs plays Andrew Bennett. He was the original Benny in 1996's Rent, which I found kind of interesting.
0: The TV movie is also uh, one he was in as well. The original Broadway cast of Rent, yes.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And Sean Bean, who is known for dying which he uh yes. also <laughs> does spoilers but like that's what he does he's here he does the thing that he is famous for
0: i'm going to be in the lord of the rings as boromir oh <laughs> i'm going to be in game of thrones i lose my head
1: <laughs> but he got to be in every lord of the rings movie for what was probably like a week of filming
0: kind of yeah
1: <laughs> uh, he plays errol partridge who's another cleric Who does the Sean Bean thing partway through the film.
0: Yes.
1: (laughs) And uh, finally, of big uh, main characters, we have Angus McFadden, who plays uh, Vice Counsel DuPont, one of the big bads.
0: Is is he some sort of pharmaceutical or like production company with chemistry?
1: I mean, it's probably not coincidental, given the (laughs) other text of the film. Uh, one of the things that he's best known for is playing Robert De Bruce in Braveheart.
0: Yes. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, a former roommate, uh, read the book Robert the Bruce, so that's why I know Robert the Bruce. <laughs> Originally from. from.
1: <laughs> yeah, so those is all
0: of our cast. Um, you, you forgot Sean Pertwee. Did I? Well, he, he plays Father.
1: Yeah, but I didn't want to put him in. He's not really real.
0: But he's also the son of John Pertwee, who played Doctor Who.
1: Oh, fun. Okay. <laughs> and that's fine. Who hasn't played Doctor Who? <laughs> well, I haven't yet. <laughs> you might get there. Yes. Fingers I mean, crossed. Probably not. I'm actually really looking forward to the, uh, the 2023 season.
0: Oh yeah. Get a new Doctor coming Looks up Looks like soon. it's
1: shaping up well. I like the actor. They brought back the original showrunner. He's been doing even gayer shows since... Leaving Yay. Doctor Who. so
0: <laughs> Got some good options here.
1: I think the new Doctor Who season will be very fun. And we'll probably find a way to talk about it. We need to find some ways to talk about other stuff. But anyway, that's behind the scenes stuff. You don't need to uh, worry about that.
0: Oh, I, I, in my list of things to do for my uh, quote movie sections, uh, I do have a couple of uh, classic Doctor Who adventures. So uh.
1: Yeah, those are kind of movies. Those are twice as long as movies.
0: <laughs> but yet, they have a lot of filler, so it's easy to actually sum up. <laughs>
1: Uh, speaking of summing up, I did not realize how much of a mess this movie was until I had to try to synopsize it.
0: Yes, uh, there is. Uh, it's okay, we're now over here, we're now over here, and this is happening, and we're having sort of a moment, etc.
1: Yeah, so... <laughs> <laughs> Basically, like all movies that think they are very hard, deep, well-thought-out sci-fi movies... This movie starts with about fifteen minutes of exposition.
0: Yeah, we've got to set up the uh, the universe. We can't, you know, organically build it, you know, get up as we go along.
1: <laughs> no, you have to just dump a bunch of information on the audience because producers think the audience is stupid mm-hmm. and can't learn things.
0: <laughs> well, sometimes it isn't the pro- uh, producers; it's the studio. Yeah, same difference. Yeah. <laughs> really, <laughs> They're bosses, in fact, <laughs> in effect. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, so in the early 21st century, humanity entered a third world war. Whoops. Survivors knew that we would never survive a fourth, just like how after the first world war we knew we'd never survive a second, and after the second we knew we'd never survive a third, you
0: know. Hmm. <laughs> well, uh, apparently we did survive a third. Yeah, humanity's
1: of. always thinking we're not going to survive the next war, and then we do, and that's partially the problem. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, hmm.
1: So anyway, to save humanity from itself, the new unigovernment of Libria, the Tetragrammaton Council, my god, we're already so many made-up words.
0: Uh, <laughs> well, it's like, uh, for, uh, you know, tetra f- is for grammar, you know, like grammar, so, f- so four-word council?
1: Yeah, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, they, they have outlawed emotion. The entire population has to be on an emotion-suppressing drug called prosium. And it is enforced by a new law enforcement agency called the Grammaton Cleric, which is a super elite fighting force with a religious devotion to hunting down sense offenders and eliminating any material that may tempt someone to start feeling feelings.
0: So, uh, very much what we're saying, sense—we're we're talking about having you know senses like used at all effectively. Yeah, feelings, so emotions. It, you know, yeah. You know, emotional, you know, you know, uh, you know, seeing a beautiful uh, sight outside might cause you know, to have an emotional response. And that's bad. So we're going to like paper over windows. So everything's dull and gray inside. Yeah,
1: everything's, everything's awful looking. It's all very kind of uh, brutalist.
0: Mm-hmm. Which normally I like brutalist sort of architecture. You know, it has you know, time and place, though.
1: Yeah, it's everything, though, in this place, because... Yes. <laughs> apparently, architecture can never trigger an emotion.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's impossible! <laughs> so outside of the city of Librio, the world exists as a set of bombed-out abandoned buildings, and the police have ventured into this area to find a rebel safe house where dozens of people are hoarding art and music and the like. Preston and his partner Partridge... Two clerics back up a large police force, like there's like 40, 50 police officers heavily armed and armored in these two dudes in robes.
0: So uh, it seems a, a little uh, outweighted uh, for the, uh, the police presence here in terms of equipment and numbers.
1: Yeah, apparently having 100 police officers is not enough to take out like 30 somewhat armed rebels. But this (laughs) one guy, Preston, jumps into a room and uses his fancy gun skills to kill an entire room of rebels without breaking a sweat.
0: Yeah, so uh, I I should probably point out that uh, this uh, movie has one of the highest body counts uh, of one person in you know one character in the movie killing people. Uh, yeah, not the highest, but pretty close.
1: Preston uses his almost innate sense of being able to understand the sensing population to find a hidden art cache that includes the Mona Lisa. That's here for some reason. It's the only painting that anyone ever has.
0: Yes. Uh, though, speaking of Doctor Who, uh, there's an episode of Doctor Who where Leonardo da Vinci actually creates a number of copies of the Mona Lisa uh, and is part of a complicated scheme by the bad guy. <laughs> so I'm just going to say that this is one of those spare copies.
1: This is also a piece that I like because they, <laughs> they walk up to the Mona Lisa with a little, I don't know, scanner doodle, and they beep it and go, it's authentic. It's like, so what you're saying is only the original authentic Mona Lisa could inspire <laughs> feelings. If it's an art print... Fine. It's no, doesn't matter. Yes. Yeah, so
0: <laughs> well, maybe they need to, like, check off certain items or whatever. So it's like, we've got most of the prints, but we need to get rid of the original so they don't copy it anymore.
1: So they burn it all because we've gone straight into Fahrenheit 451 just immediately.
0: hmm Yes. So uh, we're going to just destroy everything uh, that we uh, don't want in our, our society. And now we're we're, we're we're safe from it.
1: So they return to the city. Uh, Preston notices that Partridge has taken a book and claims that it's to make sure it's disposed of properly because sometimes the sweeping team misses stuff. Hmm. Also, while they're in the car, their watch alarms go off, which reminds them that it's time to inject one of their daily doses of prosium. One of. They have to take this stuff like six times a day. Yes,
0: uh, it's like Super Prozac or something.
1: That is their daily interval Apparently this is what they call another we have to learn all of this this vocabulary for this movie.
0: Yeah, I guess having it being so regular though, it uh, keeps everyone in a certain level of routine and you know, able to observe if someone's not following that routine.
1: And speaking of routine, we drive through the city where we observe that the central pastime of the citizenry seems to be sitting in large open squares listening to state propaganda.
0: Well, if you don't got anything else to do. Yeah.
1: <laughs> there is a government leader called Father who delivers all of the state propaganda and is just constantly giving high-winded speeches about how great everything is and how good it is that they've all given up emotions and how they're protecting humanity. So,
0: you know, we, there is some bad stuff, but we've gotten past it. And so we have to be vigilant to never fall back into those old uh, bad uh, patterns of feeling things, people. So
1: Preston is called before vice Council DuPont... Who's known as Father's voice? Even though Father seems to be talking a lot, yeah,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, he can, speak, he can speak for himself, right?
1: I think so. <laughs> Here we learn Preston is an enforcement prodigy. He's one of the best clerics. He's intuitive understanding of tracking down sense people. Except that he did not notice that his own wife was off of her meds for years and was arrested by another cleric about four years ago.
0: Hmm. Well, that's a little awkward. So uh, how'd you miss that one, guy? Yeah.
1: So now Preston is a single father of his two small children, one of whom is training to become a cleric himself.
0: And uh, I have to say that, uh, you know, especially early in the movie, uh, you know, son is like, kind of children of the corn here uh, speaking of uh, mm-hmm. that particular reference i know like looking a...
1: at that i was like oh yeah i see how you got there <laughs> so after this beating preston starts thinking over how he didn't catch his wife which makes him think of his partner partridge and he quickly checks to see that he never actually turned in that book into evidence and Whoops. he's been going into the wasteland by himself so he follows him there to find him reading the book of poetry in an old abandoned church.
0: I, I think it was like Yeats or something like that.
1: You think so. Something, uh, I hate it. I'm gonna just go. I don't get poetry. I tend not to like poetry that much. I found it needlessly repetitive, and the fact that they kept quoting it bothered me. Hmm. <laughs> but that's me.
0: <laughs> well, uh, there is another, you know, uh, uh, I guess poetry reference of a sort. Uh, in the form of some music later, so maybe they could have uh, made use of that instead. They could
1: have. They they'd kind of needed a better through line to represent the emotional stuff. Yes. And actually, if they had been using the musical cue from the beginning, they could have incorporated in the movie soundtrack better mm-hmm. as he as other people start feeling things. But you know, that's movie making. Yeah, that, I don't do that.
0: <laughs> yes. <laughs> maybe we could someday.
1: So Partridge <laughs> points out the hypocrisy of killing people for having feelings because having feelings makes you kill people.
0: Yeah, that seems a little weird. So, is this is this is he trying to imply that maybe the the father and the state apparatus are afraid of something? Ooh. They are feeling something. Hmm.
1: So he grabs his gun, which forces Preston to shoot him rather than him being apprehended and, I guess, probably interrogated and executed anyway.
0: Yeah, so uh, I guess he's like, uh, let's just get this over with. So back in
1: the city, Preston is introduced to his new partner. Brant. He's also an intuitive cop. So great. They have two intuitive enforcers.
0: He also seems to smile a lot.
1: Yeah, I like him. I like him yeah. as a character personally. I wish he had more screen time and development.
0: I, I do as well, and but you know the, the fact that he's like the only person in this movie that who, who routinely smiles. It's sort of like, hmm, there's something different about this guy.
1: So Preston goes home where his sons watching state propaganda, like everyone does. Um, he asks if he should report a boy he saw crying, and Preston says, "Yes, no compromise. Anyone who's feeling must die, including small children." Yes. The next morning, distracted by his partner's betrayal and all of that stuff, Preston accidentally breaks his morning dose. His son, Mini Enforcer, just shows up behind <laughs> him as like, "You will go to the clinic and you will get another dose, and you will log its absence right now." It's like, okay,
0: cool, creepy uh, kid. Oh, okay. Sure. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, it's awkward. I thought I was supposed to be the emotionless weirdo here.
1: But because of terrorist activity, the dispensary is closed. And Preston's partner is abnormally punctual, so he gets picked (laughs) up before he can finish replacing his dose.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, I guess uh, we're just going to have to go one less today.
1: So they move on to their day's work of raiding a woman's apartment. This is Mary, who has been off her meds for quite a while and is harding a large collection of banned objects in the walls. Um, because she couldn't have gotten all this by herself, Preston saves her life in order to interrogate her and find co-conspirators.
0: Well, I guess that kind of makes sense. If you're trying to have an oppressive police state, actually doing some investigating into the uh, you know activities of those you're trying to uh, you know oppress does make sense on some
1: level. Yeah. Yes. So the interrogation is mostly just a chance for her and Preston to philosophize at each other for a minute. She does the whole like, "Why are you alive?" He goes, well, to serve the state. And she goes, well, that's stupid.
0: <laughs> it's like, well, uh, then why is the state existing? Because, you know, there's no reason for it to exist if it's not serving the people. So, yeah. you know.
1: <laughs> so the, there's a point to be made here. There, There's an interesting debate about why to live. And they are positing that there's a distinction between living to feel things and enjoy life and have emotions Mm -hmm. is superior to just living to continue living but they they really aren't doing a good job because a lot of people live in order to serve the greater community Mm -hmm. like whether or not you agree with the actions that this particular community is taking the fact that a lot of people seem to be living in order to serve their greater community could be considered just as valid as living for hedonistic emotional reasons.
0: You know, they uh, folks have, you know, their motivations and, you know, you can't, you know, it, it's it, if we're going to be saying that, you know, having emotions is a good motivation for, you know, sort of basing one's life around, basing it around something else like, you know, service to others is also valid. So, you know.
1: Yeah, so they don't want to engage with this debate for reasons Which we'll get into probably later. probably why, but, so Yeah. yeah. <laughs> But Preston is starting to break a little bit because he's been off his meds all morning and Mm -hmm. this is affecting him now. Uh, Later, we get a bit of explanation of gung-fu. It's kind of the gun-kata in this. It supposedly maximizes firing angles while taking up strange stances to avoid statistically likely return fire. Um, However, it it doesn't.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that maybe it works well in-universe, because they maybe intentionally train everyone that they give, you know, automatic weapons to, to be bad at using them.
1: Yeah. See, the thing, I mean, this is an interesting idea. It's, an, it's a kind of interesting idea to say, well, we have guns, they're tools, they're kind of rote base tools that everyone considers have taken the, like, finesse and skill out of fighting. Even though they really mm-hmm. haven't, all you have to do is, like, watch Keanu Reeves' training for one of his action movies. Yeah, <laughs> but um, this entire supposed fighting style that gets you out of the way of return fire is an interesting idea. But they keep their core in basically the same position, which is the part that someone's going to be shooting at.
0: Yes, you know, generally rule, you know, you know, starting point one for learning how to shoot a gun is all right. See your target there. Shoot at the middle of it.
1: Yeah, so great. You've moved your arms and legs out of the way, but not, you know, the middle of your body where all the squishy organ parts are.
0: <laughs> well, I, I guess maybe they have some thing where it's like for, from the perspective of the person shooting at them that they look like they're moving their core, <laughs> so they overcorrect constantly. Yeah, yeah, well, that, that's fine. That's gotta be it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so... Uh... Preston later gets a little bit fed up with how everyone's desk looks the same and starts messing with stuff, which draws suspicion because everyone's desk looks the same. So why Mm -hmm. mess with stuff?
0: Yeah, so this is the standard desk pattern. Why are you trying to change it? He claims he's trying to improve efficiency. Hmm. Why would you want to increase efficiency? Do you think that would be a good idea? Mm -hmm. Do you have a motivation that is beyond what you've been told to have?
1: (gasps) So Brandon is here to inform Preston that they found a large rebel stronghold. They clear it very easily. But Preston takes mm-hmm. something and uses the same excuse that Partridge did that they don't always find stuff, so I'm going to take this thing. They also find no, a collection of puppies that the rebels were defending with their lives. Preston saves one under the pretense of checking it for illness.
0: Yes. So, you know, it could be like dog flu or something like that, I guess.
1: Uh, back from the city, he tries to argue for capturing more rebels, but apparently Father has decided that all offenders will now be shot on sight. There's no leniency left.
0: Well, uh, that's going to be counterproductive to finding the people that you're trying to, you know,
1: get rid of. You'd think so. Hmm. So Preston's having a bit of an awakening here. He's he's not liking what's happening. He tries to take the dog back to the wasteland, but it won't leave because it's a puppy.
0: Yes. You know, like, dang it, puppy. Do I have to be, like, mean and things like that to you? Because you're, you're being all, all puppy-eyed here. Oh, God.
1: He's found by a random patrol, and he almost talks his way out of it when the dog barks, and he has to just kill them all. Hmm. He's now well, uh... fully... Turned against the agents of his former world for a puppy.
0: Well, I guess uh, when you're dealing with the the you know uh, very much you know faceless uh, brutality of the you know, the fascist state here, you know, doing it for a puppy is good enough reason.
1: Yeah. So keep in mind the order of events here. He's now killed a patrol in the wasteland um, without any particular prior warning. He obviously didn't expect to come across a random patrol and have to kill them all. Mm-hmm. That's that's step one. Yes. <laughs> whoops so brandon finds preston training with a sword because apparently they still do that even though they are gunfighters
0: yeah maybe there's somewhere in this world where guns aren't allowed for some reason
1: so they do a bit of a fight and talk about the patrol being killed last night how stupid brandon is (laughs) generally there's an era (laughs) of suspicion around preston but also because the patrol's been killed, Fathers decided to just speed up the eradication of the resistance and they're going on even more raids is the practical upside of this conversation.
0: All right, so uh, do you know where, the, where we're going to be doing our raids at? Because, you know, if we don't have any leads, we're not going to find them, guys. Just
1: apparently go to any random burned out building and you find a collection of rebels and some art. This seems to be the pattern here.
0: Uh, yeah, hmm. Well, maybe there's like, I don't know, maybe maybe a part of the state is like feeding people, you know, into the uh, the, the wastelands there in order to keep the uh, clerks busy. There we go.
1: We have to get Strange New World in here somehow. (laughs) So during the raid, Preston finds himself alone in a room full of rebels. And instead of killing them all, he tells them to run. Uh, They don't want to and eventually he just leads them out himself killing several cops in the escape attempt but then he rounds a corner and finds that Brandon has captured all of the rebels that he has been trying to help has them lined up for execution
0: yes thank you for flushing them towards us um
1: yeah totally so Preston basically starts getting ready to fight Brandon's like you should shoot them all here use my gun and he switches it over to full automatic and is about to like start shooting his way out but one of the rebels nods him off, and he gives the gun back and lets Brandon's people shoot them all.
0: Hmm. Well, uh, well uh, thank you, random guy here. Um, you're still dead, though. Yep. B- bye.
1: So Preston, who's now fed up with everything, asks the vice Council to give him the authority to track down the underground resistance in the city itself. He investigates hmm. Partridge's possessions, finds some old photographs. One is a picture of him and Mary together with freedom written on the back of it. This is a lead... Apparently. Yeah,
0: it's a a connection between somebody he has in custody. It's, you know, the the secret spoiler within their own ranks.
1: Hmm. So he confronts Mary about her and Partridge. uh, When she finds out that Preston killed him, she attacks him. But he just basically uses this to grab her and then have feelings about the fact that he's grabbed her. And then he runs away.
0: Well, uh, you know, I, I guess being emotionless for so much of your life does kind of make it hard to like deal with emotions when you're not feeling when you start feeling them again Yeah,
1: so So Preston tracks down a librarian who Partridge knew Um, they have a bit of a light beating and he gives him some information about how Partridge used to come in and basically just read stuff, but Preston then uses his intuitive, oh, you've got something hidden here senses, to throw him through a bookshelf wall, which uncovers a secret room, and the leader of the rebels. Right there. Ta-da!
0: So, uh, Preston, are you gonna uh, join them or turn them in?
1: Apparently join them, because they hook him up to a polygraph machine to see if he's feeling things, which he is. Great. They tell him about the paradox of emotion, that feeling is good, but sometimes you need to not feel stuff, and... That some people need to suppress their feelings even more completely in this world so that other people can have the freedom that they're fighting for. Also, they want him to kill Father. Because once the figurehead is dead, they can set off the entire revolution that they already have planned and ready to go.
0: Oh, uh, that's convenient. Well, uh,
1: Then once they've been able to set off a bunch of bombs in the factories and dispensaries, the drug supply will get taken out for a day or so, and the entire regime will come toppling down on itself.
0: Yeah, well, uh, you know, Preston did start feeling things pretty quickly when he wasn't uh, constantly taking his uh, meds there. Um, so I guess that kind of makes sense in the fiction of the world there. Yeah, it does. But it also kind of, uh, you know, draws a giant circle around a weakness in this regime.
1: Yeah, this entire thing is ready to fall in on itself if the drug supply is interrupted for even half a day.
0: Mm-hmm. So, uh, you're kind of a... Uh, <laughs> a load-bearing element of your, your, your fascist state here, folks.
1: So Preston reveals himself to Mary, then despite warnings from the rebels, decides to go see her execution. This upsets him a lot, and he breaks down crying in the street, which is when Brandit rolls up and arrests him for
0: crying in the street. Hmm, you seem to be emotional, my friend. It is time for you to go to jail. Yeah. And by jail, I mean probably executed.
1: He beats up Preston, uh drags him through the cleric offices to the vice council. As evidence of Preston's crimes, they trace his gun to the murder of the cops and things. (sighs) Except it wasn't Preston's gun. It was Brandon's gun because he switched them when he offered to kill the traitors.
0: Dun, dun, dun. Wait a moment. How did he pull that off?
1: Also, (laughs) remember the timeline here. (laughs) <laughs> where he killed all of the guys in the wasteland without planning to well before that point yeah in fact hmm. he didn't kill anyone after that so he had his gun the entire time for some reason and then switched it back then like later on
0: or did he He just only switch it the one time in which case, you know, it being Preston's old gun should be something they could figure out pretty easily. Doesn't
1: that they do have kind of a good line where he's like, "Oh, I have your gun." It's like, "Well, yeah, you took it from me when you arrested me."
0: Haha. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Haha. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, uh, well, dang, uh, or something. Yeah, the <laughs> entire
1: this entire double cross thing is like predicated on the idea that he switched guns. But all yes. of the stuff that they're tracing him for doing happened before he switched guns.
0: <laughs> well, them kind of falling for it does make sense. Yeah, it does later. Later, But still. <laughs> this point, it's like a little head-scratching.
1: They drag Brandit away, but since an accusation has been made, they do need to search Preston's home. Preston has no feelings about this whatsoever. Like a good little boy.
0: Yeah, so of course, uh, I understand. Hopefully they don't pull the mirror out of the wall and find where I've been stashing all my pills. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. He rushes home Mm -hmm. to find his stashed drug supply before it can be found. When he gets there, it's gone. His son has them because his son has been off his dose since their mom was.
0: Well, that's a bit of a surprise. Uh, I guess that maybe explains why you're being so creepy earlier. You have to, like, overdo it in order to keep hiding.
1: Yeah, both of his kids have been off of their meds since his wife was. Now he's off. The the entire family's gone rogue.
0: Yes. (laughs) Hooray, we're a rogue family. Let's go, uh, you know, paint the town red uh, later.
1: (laughs) So Preston now is finally ready for his plan. He turns in the Rebel Underground. In exchange for turning in the Rebel Underground, he gets an audience with father because father never sees anyone because it's such a giant threat to his life.
0: Yeah, you know, he's, he, you know the, the Father, the great in power, never sees anyone, no way, no how.
1: Before he can see Father, they take away his weapons and they give him a polygraph, which was a trap because it was all part of Father's plan. Brandon even shows up to rub it in. They could never get an agent into the rebels without having them feel, so they allowed Preston to go off his meds to infiltrate the rebels so that they could later betray him and catch everyone at once.
0: Well, uh, I guess that it kind of explains why they... Let him do this. Oh, all right.
1: So also turns out, since they're going to kill him anyway, doesn't matter. May as well tell him. Father's not real. He's just a made up figurehead that is actually the vice council using holograms to create a mouthpiece of propaganda.
0: Dang it. Mr. Pertwee isn't real. Jeepers. So now they've caught
1: Preston. They're ready to kill all the rebels. Everything's looking great, except Preston has literal guns up his sleeves.
0: Dun, dun, dun. He
1: also goes catatonic and dies for a second, and that's him getting ready to fight, apparently.
0: yeah. Well, it's it's like you know, the polygraph is still hooked up to him, and he's like, I'm suddenly going to enter my calm space, so everything about me stops for a few moments. Yeah, I
1: mean, I do like the scene. Yeah. I see what they're doing <laughs> with the scene, and I liked it, but like, that's not how a polygraph works. <laughs> it flatlines, everything flatlines, and then the guy goes, oh, shit, and then he starts killing
0: people, yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh no, he's uh, entered the Matrix or something.
1: <laughs> so he shoots all the cops in the room. He shoots all the cops in the hallway. Pretty decent fight scene. Mm-hmm. He confronts the vice council, a.k.a. Father, in his opulent decorated office. Yes,
0: with like paintings and stuff. Yeah. Uh, wow.
1: Preston kills all of his sword guards. Then he fights and kills Brandon, also with his sword. Then he has a handgun battle with Father where they're actually doing kung fu gunplay. With really, really <laughs> up close kung fu moves trying to shoot each other.
0: Yeah, you know, uh, you know, let's count the bullets here, everyone, and pull the matrix thing like the one bit in mm. the subway.
1: Until he finally disarms father and has him at gunpoint. And then father goes, Oh, but I feel stuff. You wouldn't want to kill someone who's actually feels stuff because that's somehow different from killing the 60 people that you just killed <laughs> in the last 10 minutes or so.
0: You know, no, not in this case. Mm-hmm. You, Fake father, you're you're jerk face. Come on.
1: This very obviously does not work. So, yeah. Um, Now father's dead. Preston moves into the propaganda room and starts blasting computers, which apparently disables all of the propaganda machines and signals that the rebels that it's okay to rebel. They blow up all the dispensers, overwhelm the entire police force immediately. (laughs) And also, Preston's daughter has a dog now. Hooray!
0: City's and on fire. Everything's
1: lives. fine. That's it. We're, we're done. The regime is toppled. Good job.
0: Well, uh, I suppose uh, there is a certain level of. You know, everyone's kind of been doing a routine constantly for years now. So, you know, we don't necessarily have to change, like, the whole food production sort of side of things. Mm-hmm. It just, we don't have to put up with these, you know, cops randomly picking us up off on the street and killing us. So that's nice.
1: So, this is a bit of a mess. <laughs> I haven't seen this movie in a while, and I remembered it largely for, like, it does have some pretty cool action sequences. Yes. Um, they're not so filmed I- particularly well, unfortunately, but it has some of a good choreography.
0: Uh, it's, it's all about the movement, not necessarily the camera. <laughs>
1: um, but this movie is a bit of a mess, and I, I did figure out why. Uh, mm. There's a couple of reasons. One, the writer-director uh, in interviews, Kurt Weimer in interviews, said he was not trying to make a political movie
0: whoops, <laughs> then why did you have a movie about a fascist state and resistance against it?
1: Yeah.
0: That's a political movie there, guy. Yeah. <laughs> All
1: right, this is his personal story that he said in interviews that I, lo- I was looking up stuff for this. He, he said that he was doing art. He like, was really interested in doing art. He went to art school. He got fed up with the way that everyone in art school thought they were an artist, Because that apparently is something that someone else should decide, that you don't get to just pick up a piece of clay and go, haha, I'm an artist, because you have to be good at doing it to be counted as an artist. And he got fed up with art, with the art world, and then didn't engage with art for years until later his wife was like, hey, you're being a bit of a dick about this, and then he re-engaged with art. And then it was like, oh my god, look how cut off from the world I was. There's
0: so much beauty out there.
1: And then he made this movie about it.
0: So, uh so this movie is about getting back to the world of beauty, I guess.
1: Yeah. But so this movie is it's it's really interesting to talk about. Like, I was thinking through this, like, this movie is a mess. This movie is a complete and utter mess. It has no idea what it's trying to say and no idea how to say it. But mm-hmm. It's fascinating as a place to start talking about this particular genre of science fiction because mm-hmm. it is just a mashup of the greatest hits of the dystopian future <laughs> sci-fi novel.
0: <laughs> kind of yeah, uh you yeah, know, we got, you know, the giant oppressive state, we have the the grim architecture, we have, you know, faces books everywhere. Uh, doing their mo- uh, mooc thing, we have uh, endless masses of, of people that are you know a mix of you know uh, oppressed, but also potential threats uh, around every corner in their number because you never know who you can trust. Uh, you got you know the uh, the, the bombed out uh, regions of the world where everyone's you know struggling for survival or to you know resist and things like that, and it's just sort of a this is where you do that do that sort of thing. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the the artifacts of the old world are sacred items that are under threat f- by you know you know some some force in this uh, uh, you know current present here, be it that, that police state or something else. Um, there is you know also you know animals are are rare, so you got to watch out for for those. Otherwise, we're going to run out of dogs pretty soon, and you know. So on and so forth.
1: Yeah, it's got the you've got the government and aesthetics from 1984. Mm-hmm. You've got a lot of general plot line from Fahrenheit 451. You've got population control through historical and emotional pre- uh, oppression of The Giver. Mm-hmm. You've got the. Sort of both drug control, state worship, and um, external place that everyone lives. Like like the, the outside world where all of the ne'er-do-wells live from uh, Brave New World. Mm-hmm. It is the compilation album of dystopian fiction.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, if you, you know, had an anthology with all these uh, works in it, uh, this would be it.
1: Now, the general... F- Issue that you hit is it it doesn't know what to do with any of those. <laughs>
0: it's like, well, we got all these elements here that everyone kind of recognizes from these source materials. That's good enough, right?
1: You also run into an issue because you you're drawing some obvious like matrix parallels here. Um, both stylistically and with the sort of action sci-fi movie thing. Like the matrix we we forget, but before kind of the 90s, um sci-fi movies were not like you couldn't have like oh it's a thinky movie and an action movie. Mm-hmm. The Matrix was kind of the first big mainstream thinky action movie. Yeah,
0: so you know before you had more of like a Gattaca sort of thing where the the action is, you know, you know, occasionally oh we got to kind of dodge the cops, but you know, we're not getting into big fights with them sort of stuff here. While well, the Matrix came around and it's like, well, now we're able to kick some ass too and
1: uh, drawing an obvious comparison because I just went through all of the Matrix movies so that I could watch the new one, which is pretty good. I liked it. Um, uh, you, you draw a weird distinction because it's, it's way harder to work a dystopian style story from this direction, by which I mean the protagonist of Equilibrium works for and is an enforcer for the state military Mm -hmm. whereas in something like the matrix similarly to being an action movie neo is not he exists in the world and then he's taken out of it but he's never an enforcer he's never part of the dictatorial government itself
0: Uh, this is effectively we're doing the matrix except agent smith is the one who is going to be uh, liberated
1: yeah and like that the liberation is a little bit hollow because this guy this guy was fine before he believed in the thing, he liked the thing, but partially because the movie doesn't really know how to play with the tension, this is like the 1984-style tension that you are trying to get into. Like, mm-hmm. in 1984, the main protagonist works for the state, He he's a branch of the state, he's not a high-level enforcer, but he works for, I think, the Bureau, I forget what they call it, the Bureau of, of um, Word Changing.
0: Yeah, yeah, doing corrections and things like that.
1: Yeah. He, he basically censors state propaganda. So he works for the government, and the fact that he's starting to turn against the government's ideas is the central point of tension in the story. It's how mm-hmm. do you resist when any sign of resistance will immediately be put down and punished.
0: Yes, yeah, so, you know, to resist would be to be obvious about it, and if anything is obvious, well, that's the end of you.
1: Which is really kind of the problem that you get into telling the story from this direction, because this guy is a super soldier. Mm -hmm. This is a space marine has decided to turn against the other space marines. Not just a space marine, but the best space marine. This guy can mow down the entire government if he wants to, anytime he wants to, and is under no threat at any point.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, he is, he's just like a level 18 character, everyone's also level 1. Yeah, you know. so there's
1: no actual thematic <laughs> tension to him being found out. So that part's removed. Mm-hmm. But you also don't have a particular ideological struggle because he was part of the fascist machine and he never, while well, he starts feeling again, he never really understands the viewpoint of the fascist government And he never really seeks to undermine that viewpoint in any particular ideological exploration.
0: Mm -hmm. But uh, I think that's kind of where the, this is not a, you know, was not meant to be a political movie starts kind of undermining it. Yeah. Because, you know, because if you don't want this to be a political movie, then you want that you're going to be sort of actively ignoring that sort of exploration much to the detriment of the film.
1: Which is one of the places that this movie really starts falling apart because the state apparatus is so stupid that you need to be able to justify its existence through an ideological exploration. Like, Mm -hmm. what is it that the state believes? Why is controlling people's emotions so central to its apparatus? What is this doing for the state? How is it holding itself up? Why is it like this? What are the beliefs that led them here? And we get a little bit of that in the intro. Like, people are angry and upset, and that leads to war and violence. But if you actually take a minute to explore that notion, which the movie doesn't, that's usually not what leads to war and violence. Not on a large (laughs) scale. Like emotions lead to violence on an interpersonal level. On mm-hmm. I'm really upset and we got into a fight about it. But on a national level, it's not because two leaders get upset with each other, it's because there's political or ideological differences, or there's uh resource shortages, or resource grabs, or power grabs. Stuff that would that still obviously exists in this world, otherwise you wouldn't have this enforcement mechanism.
0: Yeah, indeed. You yeah, know, well. It's like, maybe if you go back to squabbles between medieval uh, dukes or whatever, you know, the, you know, the, the personal insult thing might have some merit, kind of, but at the same time, you know, there is a, uh, you know, you know, this is like, not just modern states, but postmodern states, where, yeah, it's all about, all right, so what are we going to do that's going to be both preserving, you know, my state as is, as well as growing its power? And, you know, that's, that's not really an emotional sort of decision there. That's a, I'm going to weigh my options here and pick the one that's going to be, you know, most valid for what I want to try to do here. And sometimes that's going and invade the other country nearby.
1: Especially when you're using obvious fascist imagery, because fascism is usually not a particularly... It's, it, it's an interesting one to use fascist imagery because it's not an emotional centered government. It uses a lot of emotional language to manipulate people. Mm-hmm. So having a completely unemotional populace with a fascist government creates its own jarring juxtaposition that you kind of need to answer for.
0: So uh, if you're not able to make use of the uh, fascist uh, call on emotions, I guess you have to sort of back, you know, fall back onto the general anti- uh, anti-intellectualism. So People are just sort of discouraged about from thinking about things uh, as opposed to you know feeling you know things and then you know deciding that their feelings are matter more than their uh, their you know investigations of their uh you know you know authoritarian state there and
1: you do get into um obviously authoritarian states often do control art it's one of the first things they do the the Soviet yes. Union which is not it's a fascist dictatorship it's an oligarchy it's not not communism soviet union famously controlled art had a lot of state propaganda art the nazis burned a lot of art that's where we get a lot of our burning books imagery they burned a lot of a lot of research and stuff that they disagreed with and they also burned a lot of art to control things like fascist states are obsessed with controlling art because
0: you know art is a means to you know provide a, a an argument that is potentially counter to what they're trying to build as far as the, the national story and that sort of thing. So, you know, can't have that. Can't have competings, world uh, views.
1: Yeah, so you you can't really have good art in a dictatorship or a fascist state because good art questions what's happening. <laughs> yes. And you can't <laughs> do that when you have the party line that you have to adhere to. By making everything just a plea to we should feel, the film kind of takes away the underlying messaging that you have in a lot of other dystopian fiction because I didn't really understand it. Mm -hmm. In a fascist government, the thing that the state cannot abide is questioning, not emotion. In fact, emotion is often one of the things that causes people to be so zealously overprotective of the state mechanism, which is what you wind up with in this with the clerics who have a religious devotion to upholding Mm -hmm. the state mechanism.
0: It is the end-all be-all of their existence. And anything that threatens that, you know, we have to destroy it.
1: And you also aren't even using the emotional control through drugs aspect in the way that William would expect, because you can get into, um, and something like Brave New World does get into, controlling the population with drugs, which they aren't exactly doing. Because in something like Brave New World, they have these like drug-fueled sort of orgy parties to vent the frustration and stuff that builds up of having to live in this dictatorial, semi-fascist uh, clone state that Brave New World sets up. Mm-hmm. And part of that is a little bit of emo- is emotional suppression and just sort of this idea of disconnecting with the world rather than understanding what's happening, which is one of the criticisms that you have with a lot of Sort of pharmaceutical and drug ideas is instead of looking at what's happening in the world, you're using drugs to escape it,
0: putting yourself in an emotional cul-de-sac in a a way where you know the whatever is attached to that is disconnected from the controlling you know organization around you,
1: and you are also distancing yourself from the sort of postmodern interpretation of psychological pharmaceutical psychoactive drugs, um, which was you know kind of famously. Uh, enshrined by Michel Foucault, in a a state can use a definition of madness and othering in order to control radical parts of its population. Mm-hmm. Anyone who disagrees with what the general s- arm of the state is doing can be defined as sick, and basically that lets you define them out of existence. Uh, he kind of drew a parallel between old leper colonies, which was another place that this could happen. You define. Part of the population is sick and ostracize them. And um, apparently even in some parts of the world, leper colonies later became asylums, where you would mm-hmm. put people who were designated as mad or mentally ill.
0: You know, the, these folks are a danger to you and everyone you know, so we have to take them away from you. And yes, we're going to sort of be a loose definition of what that, that means as far as their madness goes. So, you know... If you need to get rid of your uh, your wife occasionally, yeah, you know, we can maybe help. Other times, we're going to be getting rid of uh, someone who offends the state. So you know, we got we got some options.
1: And then, of course, the the largest parallel that this movie draws, which everyone talks about, is from Fahrenheit four fifty one, the uh, Ray Bradbury story about people burning books because they contain. Not because they will question the state, to be clear. No one has actually read Fahrenheit 451 when they want to talk about it. (laughs) Fahrenheit 451 is a deeply conservative book. (laughs) Because they are not burning books to uphold a fascist regime because the books may contain dangerous ideas that would question the government. They are burning books because everyone simultaneously decided that too much of books offends people. That first... (laughs) First, one group wanted like a word removed from books, and then another group decided that this whole chapter of book was offensive. And then eventually they're just like, well, let's just get rid of books altogether because it's <laughs> the only way to to appease the identity politics.
0: So uh, basically, this yeah, Fahrenheit 451 is uh, the end game result for people that complain about cancel culture?
1: Yes, essentially. Yes. And then everyone <laughs> watches TV because TV is so milk toast and, and will never offend people the way that books will.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I, I've seen some pretty uh, wacky TV there. Hmm. For having so many
1: <laughs> fundamental ideas and for being such a, such a staple of science fiction, Fahrenheit 451 is a deeply troubled conservative novel.
0: Yes, <laughs> it is. Uh, I, I suppose, you know, maybe it's time to write a, a response to that one.
1: Uh <laughs> yeah it's it's a book about moral panics and cancel culture that is usually interpreted as a book about fascism mm-hmm.
0: but it's actually trying to say that oh everyone is just going to be upset constantly and so that 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 it's what the problem is and not you know something else mm-hmm. <laughs> so
1: when you when you just directly wholesale lift Fahrenheit 451 and shove it into 1984, they don't actually mesh the way you think
0: they do. Yes. <laughs> you know, uh, you know. yes, in 1984, you know, it's like, okay, we're going to have newspeak, we're going to have uh, reductions of our culture and how we speak, and the only approved literature is, you know, you know state pro- party propaganda, that sort of thing. But, you know, it's not, you know, that's it, more about the focusing on you know specific elements of what is the full body of things that have ever been written and it's not necessarily concerned about the active destruction of uh, the uh, you know the the dangerous materials or whatever there so 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 it's a sort of a a weird mix up here i guess yes
1: yeah it this movie especially has oversimplified the ideas to the point of uselessness and like yeah 451 is about offense 1984 is more about sort of Noam Chomsky's ideas that um, the way that the media is presented to people can control the literal ideas that you can even be capable of having. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Which is what leads you to start questioning things that the state mechanism is doing.
0: If you are uh, unable to conceive of a better world.
1: (laughs) Bringing it into something like this, where they have oversimplified the entire idea into emotions and no emotions you're actually kind of removing the emphasis on ideas and the way that engaging with art and literature and other things exposes you to new ideas and makes you think about things, which may make you start questioning a uniparty system that you would get in a fascist state, which is dangerous to a fascist state. And that is why they start banning books and art and things that the government doesn't approve of.
0: Yeah. Well, I guess there is maybe a reading of the, of this film here where the emotional you know, you know, denial of emotions is a complete nonsense sort of like excuse for uh, their various fascist sort of techniques here uh, and so you know there is you know maybe a, a way you know sort of, you know a view that you can sort of have that you know this is sort of the the excuse they're using in order to do all these you know things that they want to be doing anyway um, but then you know why have the drugs
1: <laughs> Well, it essentially is. And some stuff that they throw in right at the end, which goes completely unexamined by the movie at large because it's thrown in the last five minutes, Mm -hmm. is emotions in this world are kind of taking the narrative place of uh, wealth and privilege. Having emotions is something that you're not supposed to have. Everyone has to be very conformist. Like, you're, dr- you're getting a lot of sort of old-time American propaganda of the Soviet Union sort of imagery. Everything is stark. Everyone wears the same thing. Everyone does the same thing day to day. You're You're using emotionlessness as sort of a byword for communism in this particular story. And yes. getting into the last five minutes where the powerful elite classes have emotions and live in opulence and are surrounded by art is drawing that kind of thing in like a corrupt government where everyone is supposed to go without because it's better for the general greater good but the wealthy elites still get to live in opulence and have all of this power wealth and privilege you've now turned emotions themselves into a representation of privilege and wealth and the extra kind of resources that the wealthy elite get to have while the general masses don't, even though in a system like this they are trying to pretend that everyone's on the same footing, i.e. emotionlessness.
0: Hmm. I guess this does remind me of a a particular uh, quote. Forgive me uh, for uh, not remembering the uh, the fellow's name. Uh, The the guy behind uh, Metropolis, uh, 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 Fritz Lang, there we go. Uh, he was in Germany before the second world war famous for doing metropolis and other movies. Uh, you know, German expressionism is sort of like one of the things he helped popularize and, you know, sort of make, you know, you know, a big thing, you know, you know, at the time. Uh, and as the, you know, rising of, of, of fascism and the, you know, the Nazi party and all that, some of those folks, you know, like, Hey, we really like your work. And he's like, Oh, and so, uh, it's like maybe like Goering and and uh, somebody else took him to dinner one night and he's like real nervous and like he doesn't really know what's to think about this uh, because, you know, he's not down with this whole fascism thing at all. Um, and, uh yeah they're like, so we want you to make the, uh, you know, the quintessential, you know, German film uh, that will be the greatest thing ever. And he's like, um so uh, I should probably let you guys know that I, help, you know, I'm Christian and all that, but uh, I do have some Jewish uh, background on, you know, uh, I my mother's side or something like that. And they were like, "Well, that's the thing. We get to decide who you know is Jewish and not." And he's mm-hmm. like, "Oh, I see here." And uh, afterward, it's after, like immediately after ending, you know, the meeting there, he's like, "Yeah, I'm packing a suitcase and leaving Germany," uh, and so he left. Um, but uh, it, it does kind of remind me a little bit of that sort of, you know, if you're a party insider, you can get away with, you know, ignoring the core fundamentals that they're enforcing, uh, uh, you know, ideological stuff that they're forcing on everyone else. What you are, who you are, etc., uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera, it becomes irrelevant once you have the in with the uh, those with all the power in there, uh, which I you know does very much feel like part of what's going on here in the movie that those who are at the top are able to have that, that emotion there. And that's why I think Brant actually, you know, is off his meds as well. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, he is very smile, uh, smiley all throughout the movie here. And so, you know, maybe they, it's like, yeah, we're going to have you be a, you know, you're a party insider already. And, you know, we'll have you sort of train up as the uh, the new, uh, you know, super guy to be uh, our uh, moles uh, or our unsuspecting moles, uh, you know, partner here and part of all the scheme here. Uh, so that's sort of one of the things I was thinking when I was watching this movie. Um, but, it, but but sort of get back to the point, though, that there is a, I guess, a truthful element in, you know, how this is sort of being, you know, laid out in the film. And it it's actually fairly reflective of real life uh, sort of, uh, you know, regimes. And I guess that means it's political, sorry. but
1: <laughs> In the context of the film, you definitely have Preston as the true believer mm-hmm. who's very easily manipulated. Yes. And you do have, like, obviously, Brandon knows what's happening because he shows up in the dude's super opulent office right at the end. Yes. There's no <laughs> way that someone who is a true believer like Preston, would actually be able to put up with that. Which is also one of the things that you get in these things sometimes, which could have been an interesting thing to explore, that an actual full-on true believer of the system like that is dangerous to those in power. Mm -hmm. Because you, as the corrupt government official, are now possibly in the crosshairs of this person who truly believes in this system and truly believes in what it's trying to do. Because you don't.
0: Yeah, you know, you've created quite literally a, a clerical class of zealots who are fully on board with what you're spouting here. You've, you know, enforced your your system in place to, you know, cultivate and to reinforce their behaviors to be, you know, a super-duper uh, murder machine that are able to sort of take out anyone with these particular qualifications. And... If that happens to be you, maybe they're not going to uh, stop with just the Randos in the uh, in the, uh, the wastelands there. So, you know, that could have been an interesting sort of, I guess, twist on the movie in a way. Yeah,
1: I think it would have been a much better way to go because it would have let you understand what's happening better. His mm-hmm.
0: disillusion could have
1: gone along with finding out that the system doesn't actually function the way that anyone thinks it does.
0: Indeed. My, I guess, uh, suggestions for, you know, improving this movie well after the fact... Uh, would be to have more of that sort of uh, revelation sort of coming through. On the other hand, uh, also when the, he's with the resistance, having a moment where they're like, yes, yeah, some of us have to suppress our emotions, et cetera, et cetera, have him go back on the drug. And then he sort of re-enters that sort of you know hazy state where you know he's not feeling things, but now he has sort of a different perspective on his full world there that – There is something more to be perhaps, uh, you know, appreciating. But, you know, he's kind of tired of these hypocrites at at the top here. And so it's maybe then ambiguous if he's, you know, taking out the leadership because of their, you know, his zealous beliefs or if he's actually gone in uh, with the the rebels there. Because either one at that point could be potential motivation there. And, you know, leaving it ambiguous of which side he's actually on, you know, at the end. Would be okay, uh, because you know this system has basically been set up to fail, given their decisions and how they've structured things.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty interesting take on the thing to be able to do a more nuanced thing of, since obviously these drugs wear off incredibly fast. Like mm-hmm. you could be on the drugs and you could be off the drugs. It could be pretty ambiguous whether he's actually on them or pretending to be on them whose side he's on why he's Mm -hmm. doing it what his actual motivations are but they want to do an action movie yes (laughs) this is the thing where they're just doing an action movie to do an action movie because they thought an action movie would be popular um
0: what like (laughs) no one on the
1: cast is sitting there being forced to read dense philosophical texts
0: like they were in the matrix (laughs) yeah we're uh we're going to be uh, focusing on how you move here and swinging around the uh, the guns in a cool way.
1: Yeah, I think the thing that really that really cemented the problems that this movie had for me, because as a as a movie, it's a, it's trying to take an anti-fascism stance. And it's trying to explore the ways that a fascist government controls people and then some of the ways to fight that, which in this one is get a superhero.
0: Yes. <laughs> you need that Ubermensch in order to take down your government of Uber uh, hmm. But I think the thing that
1: really, really cemented for me that this movie has a fundamental structural problem is that in basically every movie of this type, any movie where you're showing uh, people fighting a dictatorial fascist government, whether or not it's intentional or not. Some movies it's intentionally there, some it's not. Some of the subtext is, is just something that you read in. But you can usually find a queer reading of the film. You can usually figure out a way that you can put that representation on the film. Because that's one of the things that very famously a lot of fascist states... Oppress, and it's it's a pretty mm-hmm. easy to insert oppressed notion into the way that a fascist organization is oppressing and controlling its population. Indeed, I could for the life of me not figure out a way to put a queer reading into this movie.
0: Yeah, it's because I guess uh, you know for a lot of sort of uh, fascist ideology and governments and things like that, there is a certain level of uh, machismo uh, where you know you know f- uh, focus where you know where men are super awesome and women are less so and anything that is not you know straight white uh, heterosexual is is badness here and so you know any sort of uh non-standard uh you know uh, sexualities are just the worst and must be destroyed entirely but there is none of that in this movie uh other than you know yes the main character is a badass but it's not really being celebrated it's sort of like wow that's kind of cool
1: well even with that just (laughs) that's it (laughs) what like they say the emotion thing a lot but like you don't really have a particularly good sense of what it is exactly that the government is trying to suppress Mm -hmm. it's not it's sort of art it's sort of art it's sort of culture it's sort of a lot of things but you don't really have a sense of it like you never spend enough time with the other side to get a particularly interesting juxtaposition, how does the one side live that makes them dangerous to the other?
0: Yes. <laughs> Is it because they have sentimentality? Uh, you know, because you know, the rebels seem okay with shooting back at the people that are trying to kill them. Um, so it's not that they are like don't want to kill people or, or are really not wanting to. I, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's, it's weird. that they want
1: to read, but the other side doesn't. Which yeah. is what you get to in Fahrenheit 451, but at least they explain it. Like he's yes. <laughs> as, as flawed as I find that book. He is coming from a place of a novelist who cares about and is interested in the art of writing, saying that if we did not have this, we would lose something fundamental to the human artistic experience. Mm-hmm. This movie isn't really saying anything about what it's what you're losing they have one line about you shouldn't live just to serve the state. You should live for emotions. But why is living for emotions any more or less valid than living to serve the state? You don't yes. really talk about I it. I would like to know. <laughs> it is It is just supposed to be presupposed because you see a movie about suppressing emotions and you go, oh, that's bad.
0: You know, I, I do have my own uh, view of what to live for You know, is all about. But in terms of a work of art, this movie is trying to kind of make it a very shallow sort of read on all of that there you know there and and otherwise it's just playing a shock value we're burning the mona lisa that's bad because that's just bad all right well let us know why this is bad in the context of this world here yeah
1: you're using a lot of fascist nazi imagery which lets you just go this is bad because anything with fascist nasty imagery is bad de facto especially in storytelling mm-hmm. but you've you've created such an abstract thing that they are fighting against that you need to be able to explain why it's bad because mm-hmm. all of like you point out several times in the movie that the reasons that the state says it's bad are nonsensical and don't actually hold up to scrutiny yeah so if you're supposed to just be taking the de facto idea that well, what this person is doing is bad because this person is a Nazi and suppressing emotions is bad. You need to explain to us what the differences in the two ideological regimes are. Because you can't just go, this is de facto bad, but then also point out a bunch of contradictions in how the entire thing works.
0: This, you know, sort of uh, storytelling uh, where they're effectively using shorthand to have the audience have effectively an emotional reaction uh, to the fascist side here is counterproductive to actual fights against fascism. If all your arguments are only on the emotional side like this, then you know the circle's not being drawn around the elements that are actually why it's good to fight these sort of ideologies. It's like oh, it's just it's just bad. No, it, it's the whole limiting your 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 liberties. It is the uh, wholesale murder of of individuals. The, the the oppression all that sort of stuff and devoutness to the state sort of stuff that's the main characters you know starts off the movie with you know that needs to be questioned and that some in a way that needs to be questioned from that point of view that it doesn't make sense internally uh, and that's one of the core ideological sort of arguments against this sort of ideology that it is it doesn't make sense as a matter of course <laughs>
1: I think one of the things is like an emotional argument against something bad is not a bad place to be because everyone's driven by emotions at one point or another. I think the real failing in something like this is in one, it doesn't really give you any information on how one would go about fighting fascism because you need a superhero who's trained by the fascist state. But also using so much shorthand, having no actual substance to what you're doing is basically the movie saying fight anything that looks like fascism. Yes. But the general problem that you hit, and some of the things that are explored in better depictions of this, is things that are fascism seldom look like fascism. Mm-hmm. Because you not everyone's going to run around dressed like a Nazi. Some people are, which, you know, easy enough that to spot. That makes it easy. <laughs> not everyone is. Like, that is, to draw the two obvious comparisons that you have, 1984 was about how even living inside of a fascist state, a lot of people don't see it as a fascist state because the state has arranged it so that you can't. Mm-hmm. And in The Matrix, which is the obvious movie comparison that people want to draw here, they're saying that the fascist entity of the enslaving machines doesn't look like fascism from the inside. Indeed. It looks normal until you start noticing that it's not.
0: You start seeing the glitches of The Matrix, as I say. Uh, then you can sort of start putting the pieces together and draw out the truth of what your situation is. Uh, I guess this kind of goes back to a degree to that uh, quote about, you know, when fascism comes to America, it will be uh, wearing the American uh, flag and uh, carrying a cross because that's what you kind of have to do in order to get fascism to grow in the United States. Yeah, You have to sort of co-opt the trappings of the local culture in order to carry through uh, uh, your ideological uh, program there. Uh, And if you are super obvious that this is something completely different and new and all that, then you are going to be spotted. So (laughs) it's like, yes, this looks like the bad thing that we had a world war about. Let's maybe not do that here. Oh, you are just being an all-American here and golly gee, you just want to, you know, uh, bring back our uh, old greatness? Well, uh, that doesn't sound so bad. Oh, wait.
1: Well, you also have the thing that, like, fascism didn't have to come to America. Yeah. <laughs> like, we basically <laughs> invented a lot of these ideas. The Nazis got half of their stuff from us.
0: Yes. Uh, which is really, really terrible. So let's stop doing that, guys.
1: So I think kind of wrapping up, because we're. I think we've circled around our points several times.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs>
1: it's like this is a this is a mess of a movie. Mm-hmm. It's worth watching because there's some interesting action ideas, but also it is such a primer on just it's not the story beats or anything, but like the sort of trappings, the storytelling trappings of dystopian fiction. It is if you take all of the all of the story shorthand of dystopian fiction. Take out all of the substance and then shove it all into one movie with
0: guns. (laughs) It is the quintessential all of the above dystopia.
1: So it's actually kind of... It's an interesting one to explore if you want to have a discussion about the storytelling purposes of dystopian fiction. Mm -hmm. Even though as a piece of dystopian fiction, I would argue it fails miserably.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I still had fun watching it. But yeah, you know, it is... Fairly shallow, unfortunately, which I guess fits in with the non-emotional thing.
1: Yeah, well, I did. Hmm. I read a couple of reviews of this that basically said, if you removed its inspirations, you would have nothing.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Though also there was an old review, I think, from Robert Ebert that uh, basically said, the modern moviegoer is so stupid that it's good that they have something with guns to look at while it's trying to beat them over the head with a message. (laughs)
0: <laughs> you know, it keeps folks uh, engaged, I guess. <laughs> so uh, how about that ode to joy? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. That, uh, you know, for the listeners, uh, there is a a bit where, you know, he's going through, uh, you know, one of the emotional people, uh, sensors, uh, uh, folks, sensing people's, uh, uh, you know, back rooms dash uh, there, apparently by himself without getting noticed. And he puts on some music that nobody hears other than him. And it happens to be Beethoven's Ninth Symphony.
1: Also one of the only pieces of music that ever exists. You always have the Mona Lisa and Beethoven.
0: Yes. <laughs> um, but it did remind me of another film, actually. Uh, you know, something about Clockwork Oranges, I think it was. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so where are uh, you know, that was, we're trying to control the populace with, you know, you know that the, the, the rogue elements here. With uh, you know, by having them unable to commit violence because they'll feel you know terrible about it, uh, and we're gonna have a weird system to sort of set that up here, um, but uh, you know, in the in the film at least, uh, you know, the uh, the main character is kind of obsessed with uh, uh Beethoven's music, so uh, it's sort of a thing that reminded me there. But you know, as far as you know, music selections in a movie you know, about the, supposedly about the, the you know, the, the usefulness of emotions for the human experience. It is a pretty good uh, tune that does, uh, you know, once you look at the, uh, you know, you know the translation from German of the lyrics uh, for, I think it was like the fourth movement or third movement or something like that, uh, the one that everyone remembers. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's all about joy and, you know, c- cool stuff and joy and also we're going to be weeping and, you know, Stuff like that—that's just awesome.
1: And yeah, the movie is very good at imagery. Mm-hmm. It's very good at picking the the places where it needs to have things like that. Like, what's the song that we need to play that everyone's going to immediately recognize as an emotion song? Yes. Also, that's royalty-free, hopefully.
0: <laughs> so, uh, you know, uh, Aerosmith's Sweet Emotions is probably not going to cut it then.
1: Yeah, that would be hilarious, though.
0: <laughs> Sweetie, <emotion>. Bush, Copyright, man. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I mean, they could pay for it. It just would be... They never do that. They always have like, oh, he's rediscovered this amazing piece of classical music. You never, you never have them pull up. It's like, like, oh, we've discovered this old, this old music they were hoarding from the before times. It's like Kesha's TikTok or something.
0: Uh, they do something like that in an episode of Doctor Who, though, uh, yeah. uh, where it was like the the uh, like the second episode of the revived series where. It's like yes, this iPod, as they pull out a an actual jukebox, uh, you know, as from the ancient times, and <laughs> we're gonna play some uh, uh, an ancient tune, and it's like Britney Spears. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, that was kind of a you know a nice sort of a send up there, and uh, yeah, I, I want to see more of that myself. So, but but as far as cl- uh, classical music collections goes. Uh, you know, Beethoven's Ninth is one of my favorites, so I will give it a pass in this case. <laughs> though, uh, do be careful, movies in the future. Be careful. Also, Fritz Lang is awesome.
1: <laughs> well, I think we've kind of covered everything that we can possibly talk about with this movie without repeating ourselves too much.
0: Hmm, yeah, probably, um, though, uh, we could uh, do it uh, 118 times, one for each person John Preston kills in this film. <laughs> <laughs> such a body count which you know uh, which is apparently exactly one half of everyone who dies in this movie
1: (laughs) he's supposed to be the super powered gun guy so yeah (laughs) all right we've had a depressing movie with a depressing body count so i guess now it's time for the galaxy's favorite game show
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Galaxy's favorite game show, where our contestants, I've lost all emotion, and I will have to be, be so emotive this time, because there's now some people here that are uh, showing some automatic weapons, and unfortunately I'm not that nimble, I, I can dodge uh, a brick thrown at me from the audience, but uh, bullets, I'm, yeah, I yeah, I'm not a John Preston here, unfortunately. Hmm. But, apparently... Uh, Our contestants have been racking up some points here and we do have some winners and prizes to hand out. So let's begin with uh, the first prize here. To die is logical, which goes to Partridge once he's been spotted by John reading poetry. What does he win, Gepwin?
1: Partridge runs some more thematic poetry. Like, I'm not, like, there's too many and I didn't look them up. But (laughs) there's lots of poetry about, you know, dying nobly and for causes and all this stuff that could have been better... Than treading on dreams and such, like you could have had a thematic thing going here, and I think it's one of the ones that the movie missed out on. Personally,
0: yeah. At some level, I do understand. It's like, okay, we we have whatever he do was happened to be reading that day, sort of on his mind, baby. But uh, it is a missed opportunity. Yes. Um, our second prize. Uh, they're looking at me again, when uh, Could you tell them to not do that? Hmm. Uh, our second prize is the dodge this prize, which goes to Brand. For losing his face despite nominally being a badass. What does he win, Gepwin?
1: Grant wins his gun back because you should definitely bring a gun to a knife fight. And I was honestly very disappointed by how they set him up as the big, bad, equal-footing villain of the whole thing. And their sword duel was 10 seconds
0: long. Indeed. Uh, apparently there was some uh, scheduling conflicts as far as you know getting filming done for that bit. But uh, yeah, it's still something they should have worked out at the very least. Um, but yeah. So our uh, next prize is the Fooled You Prize, which goes to Father as the illusion himself and the council who make use of him. Uh, what does is, what is that group uh, win, Gepwin?
1: Father wins a moon colony, because one of the ones that I forgot to mention was Moon is a Horse Mistress, in which the sentient computer makes up a revolutionary figure to lead the Moon Rebellion.
0: Hmm. So uh, let's go to the moon, then. Wait a moment. What if this entire movie took place on the moon? It could. We just don't know. <laughs> oh, oh they're, they're pointing guns at me again. Did we ever when, see um, the moon
1: hmm. in the entire
0: film? <laughs> no, uh, we saw the sun that one time, but that's about it. Our uh, fourth prize is the Marxer bust revolutionary, which goes to Jurgen and the others in the underground who are tired of the world of emotionless fascism and everything being gray and every kind kind of being lame and... You know, not having enough, you know, paintings around, I guess. Uh, what do they win, Gepwin?
1: The revolutionaries win self-confidence. They had this whole thing set up, ready to go, at the push of a button. It, th- They didn't seem to really need to take out Father at all.
0: Indeed. In fact, uh, you know, the only thing that they really have to worry about is, like, John Preston himself, I suppose. I know there's other clerics out there, but, you know... We don't really see them other than when they die, really. Um, yeah, they, they they should have been able to take care of this themselves, guys. Hmm. Anyway, our final prize today is the Dance of Death prize, which goes to John Preston for effectively dancing between bullets as he kills basically anybody nearby. What does he win, Gepwin?
1: John Preston wins an iPod because I just want to see a version of this movie where they cross the, like, really really choreographed kung fu style gunfighting with the musical with the like musical fighting beats from baby driver and just that that would be such a fun way to do the choreographed fight scenes <laughs>
0: it's like uh perhaps there, there's a, a a version of this movie out in the uh parallel universe where they did something like that and just, you know music starts slowly building you know into these uh fight scenes. As uh, the, the you know things progress and he gets more 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 emotional, the uh, the music drives you know home his actions and movements as opposed to just being a well practiced choreograph a sort of uh, set of uh, movements here. And uh, I'd really like to see that. And oh no, the the, the weird faceless guys with the helmet are, uh, are are taking me away with Capone. Uh, uh, take it, take the audience away. Help!
1: So I guess what I was trying to say through a lot of that is I'd really like to see a version of this movie that was directed by Edgar Wright, but. I suppose I'm never getting that. Anyway, uh, Izix is gone because the state didn't like him, apparently. So, thanks for joining us on the Galaxy's Favorite Game Show! <laughs> now I'm left to introduce the next thing by myself. Oh, I, I escaped, gap One. Oh,
0: good. Oh, oh. Oof, uh, apparently... Uh, the only thing I had to do was, like, know how to dance, and I could do that. And, and they just sort of died, I guess. It was weird. <laughs> because
1: it's a world without dance, where dance is the yes. ultimate power.
0: So Kevin Bacon really is going to yeah, save us the, all. Di-
1: it's the dystopian future <laughs> version of Footloose. We're going to get to that remake eventually, probably.
0: <laughs> maybe that's the movie we make. <laughs>
1: All right, so we're going from dystopian, drug-filled, emotionally-controlled future to one of the sillier episodes of Star Trek. Mm-hmm. As we're getting back to the best reoccurring character.
0: A single-lettered character?
1: Yeah. Character's mm-hmm. so good, he doesn't need a name. Yes. <laughs> Just an initial. <laughs> yes. <laughs> this is going to be <laughs> Hide and Q, which is hide and Q. the second appearance of Q after encounter at farpoint also the beginning of the grand tradi- tradition of having Q named episodes
0: indeed you know uh, you know you know hiding q q less um you know cupid uh there's some other ones q and the brave q and <laughs> q and the gray uh but i guess there's also several really good ones that didn't have the q pun thing going on here like uh you know tapestry that's true and uh and death wish tapest Q. <laughs> tapest tap Q street <laughs> huh. mm. yes
1: yeah they gave up on this by the time they got to Picard season two so on <laughs> a lot of things
0: Well, if they, they had it for Picard season two they'd be like half the episodes would be Q something they should have
1: been <laughs> if you're going to be do awesome. a show that's all references right
0: why not Ha ha.
1: So yeah, second appearance of John Delance's Q, one of the weirder, slightly funnier episodes, uh resolves itself in an interesting way that I just love. It's it's one of the ones that is not taking itself seriously, and that's what I enjoy about this era of Star Trek.
0: Though it is a little weird that uh, you know, part of it kind of hinges on, you know, the death of a child, and Picard's like, yeah, child dying is good, actually. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so uh so that's awkward uh but uh yeah but also kind of a character for uh, what we know about him at this point Hmm.
1: so next week back to star trek with second appearance of john delancey in hide and Q.
0: next time on watchers of tomorrow did somebody say games have been listening to Watchers of Tomorrow, a podcast on science fiction media. Find and follow Watchers of Tomorrow on Podbeam, YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Spreader, Digital Podcast, and perhaps many more to come. If you enjoy our podcast, make sure to subscribe for more, and where possible, make sure to rate your experience or leave us a review. You may find Gepwin on YouTube.com slash Gepwin, and Twitter at Gepwin. You may find me, Dr. Izix, on YouTube.com slash Dr. and Twitter at IzixLP. Music is Waveform and Morris' Principle, both by DRKRN. You can also check out the Watchers of Tomorrow Discord channel. Make sure to share the experience with your friends, family, enemies, and alien overlords. If you feel you are suffering from transporter syndrome, please be aware that the next time you step off the transporter, that you, that is now, no longer exists.